the mixed impulse. So in fact, this period that I'm speaking about is uh, widely accepted to be a moment of Englishness, as uh, um, some people have uh, uh, called it, the heyday of empire, the age of liberalism. It is also uh, a moment of recurrent, virulent, anti-Semitic attacks on the small Jewish community in Britain, and a lot of research has been done about that, and I'm simply following a path that has been already followed by many and better before me. The parallels, though, I would like to suggest begs a question, are these three, or rather four, connected? And first I would like to say just a few words about um, national identity. We're speaking about the moment of Englishness. And I would like to suggest uh, um, a concept of an unwhole trinity. National identity is probably one of the most complicated concepts. Its mere definition has comprised an entire branch of historiography of growing volume into which naturally I will not go into. But I will uh, define very shortly how I'm going to use it here, and that is in the sense of a system of symbols, expressions, institutions that convey the connection between state and nation. British and English identity, there again, I should differentiate between them, they can be differentiated, but still, at the late 90s, early 20th century, I could get away with using, using them interchangeably, mostly because they were used interchangeably at the time. So, an abundance of writings on the national identity, both by liberals and by conservatives, in the second half of the 19th century, I would like to suggest, I mean, I'm not exactly uh, the, the first to do so, I, I, I suppose, that there was a, they do share, in spite of the differences, they do share a common ground of three components. Um, that is religion, um, I would say liberty or, uh, or uh, political freedom, and empire. Now, although these three seem to be shared by both parts of the uh, political um, uh, sides, I would like to suggest that they have a very problematic interrelationship. And uh, I would like to start with the first about religion and um, explain exactly how that would be, uh, or rather later I would like to, see, to show how it is problematic meeting the other two, although they coexist. Okay, so from the 17th to the 18th, uh, 17th, 18th century onwards, Protestantism uh, gave and I'm quoting Linda Colley, I suppose it's a, it's a well-known uh, quotation, to the majority of men and women a sense of their place in history and a sense of worth, it gave them identity. In spite of the growing secularization of the 19th century, identity and culture were still strongly connected to Protestantism even then. One recent study uh, has indeed rebranded Britain of 1800 to 1963 as a highly religious nation, and the period as the nation's last Puritan age. Now, that, that I suppose can be um, debated, but still, the Victorians' worldview owed much to Puritan writings, although often historical Christianity was replaced with a humanistic secular version. The connection between state and church has also changed, but at the end of the 19th century, the Anglican Church still regarded itself as the main religious expression of the national identity, and quite a few people outside of it did, that, did the same. 
Above all, political diverse, diverse, above all political diversity, Protestantism was seen as a common denominator versus the religious other, especially Catholics. Now, I'd like to, to show how liberalism, secularization, had a problem or uh, in its relationship with the religious minorities had a problem with this other component. Part of the Protestant component of English identity was the contrast with Catholic absolutism. National myth has identified the fight for civil and religious liberties and the centrality of Parliament since the 17th century as the source and reason behind the flourishing of England. Moreover, 19th century England is best associated with liberalism with a capital A. With a capital L, especially how that was. With a capital L, especially after 1846, as the liberals established something approaching political hegemony. The advent of liberal ideas in the 19th century reads also as an advent of secularization of the British state. The growing inclusiveness of British citizenship was also the road by which the Anglican Church and the British state traveled further apart. Thereby, the religious component that allowed the exclusion of, religiously of the religiously different and the liberal model, model, which was increasingly inclusive thereof, were heading for a clash. And I, I think one pertinent example is uh, Lord Russell's Durham letter as a reaction to the re-erection of Catholic hierarchy, which caused an anti-Catholic wave. And Lord, Lord Russell is actually one of the, of the people who you would expect to be on the other side of, of, the, uh, uh, of this divide. Despite the growing tolerance towards the constant trickle of converts to Catholicism, there was still a degree of cultural apostasy inherent in secession to Catholicism. Jews and Catholics, emancipation of the standing, retain uh, culturally and socially the position of the other. It wasn't, of course, purely a religious discrimination. The attitude to the Irish Catholics was influenced by historical conflict, grown perhaps into pure bigotry. Like antisemitism, it was also ethnic or, ra or racist discrimination. The social whirlwind that turned England within two decades from a rural to an urban and industrial country, the loss of common familiarity gave rise to racist and illiberal perceptions of the nation. The growing calls of the citizen on the public purse pressingly required the definition of the public, which was supplied by collectivist ideologies from right and from left as well. The recurrence of international and internal crises gave rise to recurring upsurges of anti-Semitism and anti-Catholicism. However, anti-Semitism as well as anti-Catholicism had two important boundaries. One was the limit posed by liberal institutions and attitudes which provided Jews and Catholics with political means of combating its influence. The other was conversion. Yet assimilation through conversion was not, was not the common solution of either these religious minorities, nor was it tolerance that allowed for a greater acceptance of religious minorities, but rather conflicting trends living side by side that left the contradiction between religious and liberal components of Englishness intact. So <clears throat> now I come to the third component, to empire which has the ability, apparently, to turn outsiders into insiders, but also the other way around. 
By the national myth, the glorious revolution freed Britain from Catholicism and slavery, giving all its part freedom of trade, thus providing a trio of religious freedom, civil freedom, and empire. In the 19th century, the imperial spirit was connected to a religious sense of duty or a secularized Puritan sense of social conscience. Mission stories were central in Sunday schools, uh, providing a platform for both national pride and religious fervor. Missionaries, even when critical of the culture they left behind, were proud to carry the flag. But the empire has also had an ambivalent relationship with both liberal thought and Protestant fervor. From its inception, the empire was viewed suspiciously as leading to loss of freedom. By the turn of the 19th century, the clash was the fact that redefined political camps. Home rule for Ireland divided the liberals and turned the conservatives into the, union, into the unionist party. The arguments around free trade and home rule viewed these issues as reflecting on an English character not just mere political uh, uh, arguments. These arguments both strengthened the identity and threatened it. The religious enthusiasm that drove the missionaries also fed anti-slavery movement in the beginning of the 19th century. Later, Protestant missionaries, even when succumbing to racial discrimination, were always committed to racial equality, at least in principle. By providing interpretations to local cultures enhancing education, they sometimes supported national movements and anti-imperialist activities. Possibly, the common other facilitated the new common identity of Great uh, Britain, or perhaps it was the profitability of the empire that did that. Either way, the empire could just as well turn insiders to others in ways of anti-Catholicism, due to feelings of threat to the empire, and those were more dominant, a more dominant factor, the, the, the feeling that it was an, uh, a threat to the empire, than anti-Catholicism itself. Now, the funny thing is that the strongest anti-Semitic upheavals since the 1870s were, were storming also around issues mostly imperial. Although Jews, unlike Catholics, had no mother country that could threaten the empire. So, for, even, I, I would like to elaborate a little bit on, on this connection, because uh, th there is a long-standing philosemitic tradition acknowledging the importance of the Jews in, in England. And the centrality of the Holy Land in English Protestant culture, millenarian images of Jerusalem, make Palestine arouse in England a sense of possession unequaled by any other colonial province, even before it became a colonial province. However, Jerusalem carried a double symbol. It also called for a humanity freed of the chains of commerce, imperialism, and war. Could the double meaning of Jerusalem serve as a parallel for philosophy? and anti-Semitic trends in English cultural life. And I would like to turn to what is, I would say, the main part of my um, presentation and to talk about the crisis that um, uh, gave rise to these anti-Semitic attacks and showed that they were, in fact, clashes of uh, identity. The wave of anti-Semitic expressions accompanying attacks led by liberals and radicals against the Israelis for Ottoman uh, policy following the Bulgarian atrocities after 1876 seemed to threaten to turn violent. 
the anti-Semitic upheaval appeared as a religious protest that provided a wide denominator for the liberals and was potent enough to recruit the public at large around a, myth, a, mystic, a mythic enemy. Gladstone considered the public uproar a Christian revolution. Although prominent in the struggle were radical atheists, the argument, not only uh, the argument that no, not only moral issues, but in effect, sorry, the argument brought up not only moral issues, but in effect it brought to the fore the question: What was Britain more, Christian or imperial? Centering the criticism on the Israelis' alleged Jewishness, I mean, it was converted as everybody knows by uh, by then. Christian, uh, sorry, well, uh, the Israelis' Jewishness has accentuated the religious character of the crisis, but not its original religious character, that is, Christianity of the Bulgarians against Islam of the Turks, but rather of Christians versus Jews. The criticism against the government during the Boer, the Boer Wars was heavily tainted uh, at the end of the 19th century, especially the 1899-1902, was heavily tainted with anti-Semitism as well. Many of those who were against the government's policy during the Bulgarian crisis were now supporting the government of the day, including uh, a segment of socialists, in a patriotic upsurge. In fact, this war upturned the, um, the, the usual political divide between moralists and realists. Until then, imperialists claimed claimed to, bring, to be bringing civilization and Christianity to new lands. Now they were in the camp of what they were accused to be capitalist Jews, the people who instigated the war and robbed the people of its free political choice. The criticism was mostly outstanding in emphasizing the tension between imperial rule and freedom. But surprisingly enough, it was the freedom of Britain that was involved here because uh, the empire was posed as a threat to the liberal democratic order. Therefore, the real question wasn't pro-war or not, it was pro-England, but what kind of England? The clamor for the Aliens Act, starting in the 1880s and gaining force around 1900, was entangled with imperial defense and definition. The, pro the proposers feared immigrants would worsen the, the state of physical fitness of British soldiers, deteriorated already by urbanization. Those against argued that Jewish parents were bringing up sons who were fitter and therefore a gain for imperial uh, defense. The campaign gained, re gained real force with the added question and uh, of uh, imperial tariffs, which would give preference for imperial products. The radical conservatives proposed the system of benefits for the middle and working classes as part of a more centralized empire cloaked in patriotic language, bringing up cheap, uh, bearing up cheap labor of Jewish immigrants was the sweetening pill. Now, uh, the next two incidents are a bit uh, different from those three. And um, they were there, so I have to include them. But they are a bit different than you'll see them. In the Indian silver and Marconi uh, scandals that followed each other in uh, 1911 to sort of 1913, exposed as Semitic conspiracies by Jewish financiers, brought forth allegations of corruption and dishonest handling against members of the liberal government. Both were economic questions with imperial implications, 
that raised public interest only from the point of view of corruption of public officials. Now you see it's not quite exactly the same uh, uh, juxtaposition that we had earlier. However, these scandals could be seen, that's what I would like to suggest, within the context of the political struggle between the Conservatives and the Liberals after the Act pertaining the power of the House of Lords. The general struggle between the parties has attained to many people an impression of the crisis of the liberal system. On the other hand, in 1911, there we have a different sort of exception, I think. Uh, in 1911, we a localized but unusually violent attack against Jews in Wales. In the background was a general strike that failed, religious incitement and massive immigration that destabilized the demogra demographics of Wales. The riots in Wales perforce point to the sometimes crude stitches that held the British inner empire together. The violent riots in Wales could therefore be seen within the Welsh context. But also, and I think that might be a, a fair enough way of seeing it, as part of the tension and feeling of crisis of the United Kingdom and the rise of Welsh self-determination. So what was exactly, or what am I claiming was exactly the role of antisemitism in all these different uh, crises? It is possible I should like to contend, to see antisemitism as common denominator, not for the lack of one, but for the abundance of three that were competing with each other with growing force. The exclusion of the Jew, derived from Christian tradition but not based on it, allowed the bridging between the secularization and that liberalism demanded and preservation of, a of, the, religi of the religious component. The cultural exclusion of the Jew that was, deeply that, that was a deeply ingrained tradition, even when drained of the specific religious antipathy, provided continuity and a common basis uh, with a religious identity that was already weakened. Antisemitism provided a religious other without posing any practical, political, or religious demands. Some supporters of Teutonic cultural identity included Jews and Celts. But the hatred against the Jews was more of a reaffirmation of Christian principles. The Jew as alien could provide an illusion of unity with Christian heritage. At a time when religion was eroded as a clear test of who belongs to the nation and who doesn't, the empire, one might expect, could receive a greater importance. But the attitude of the empire was itself ridden with religious rifts and disagreements. Criticism of empire, while blaming the Jews, diminished the importance of that criticism on the discourse of identity. Consciously or unconsciously, antisemitism became common denomina denominator, which depended on the religious tradition for acceptance that had little political implications. So I would like to conclude. Within the UK, England is the only part that lacks national anthem. In fact, four different songs are played instead of a national anthem at different occasions. Apparently, the ability to live within an ambivalent and perhaps dialectic system is not alien to British national tradition. Since the beginning of the articulation of national identity, secular concepts of liberty and citizenship coexisted with the self-perception of a Christian 
Protestant and Catholic nation and with imperial aspirations. Participants of the national identity discourse mostly have not consciously acknowledged the fact that the three were potentially contradictory, or at best, contending. The second half of the 19th century was a period of fast and deep change that called for the self-definition and for stability in a changing world. The crisis of the end of the century exposed the contradictions between imperial aspirations and Christian sense of mission between liberal ideals and imperial defense. Contradictory components of national identity at a time of political disagreement threatened the continuance of the ambivalent coexistence. Antisemitic language and symbols, as well as the relative weakness of antisemitism, expressed this tension and perhaps provided a sort of solution. Thank you. Um, I'm going to talk today about what I will call smart anti-Semitism in an era of tolerance. So I think in some ways extending some of the work that you're doing. Beginning with uh, the Aliens' Acts 1905 and then ending briefly with the contemporary, with contemporary examples. In 1905, the British Parliament passed the infamous Aliens Act, legislation designed to restrict Jewish immigration to Britain. John Garrett, in one of the earliest and most extensive studies of the Act, astutely describes the pressures experienced by proponents of the, of the legislation to avoid assertions that could be deemed anti-Semitic. Attuned to charges of anti-Semitism and to the potential escalation of anti-Jewish sentiments in the culture at large, Politicians made few overt references to Jews, preferring instead to speak more generally in terms of the alien or immigrant classes. This avoidance of Jews as a referent of discourse leads Garrett to conclude that anti-Semitism did not impact debates surrounding the bill's passage. <coughs> Questions of anti-Semitism, he states, are irrelevant. In contrast to Garrett, I suggest that it is precisely this kind of awareness of intolerance against Jews, coupled with intolerance itself, that provides the basic framework and grounding for British anti-Semitism, and in particular, for its distinctly civil or aristocratic <coughs> manifestations. To some extent, such oddly civil configurations of hate discourse may be likened to what critics such as Dan Stone call variously genteel golf club prejudice, social anti-Semitism, casual anti-Semitism, suit and tie anti-Semitism, and what Tony Kushner refers to as social dislike for Jews. <laughs> All are commonplace reactions to Jewish difference and assimilation, prompted ostensibly more by convention than by any distinct enmity toward Jews. For Stone, this distinction is exemplified by the intellectual and aristocratic classes who, he argues, tend to give way, quote, seemingly unwittingly, or at least without malice, to anti-Semitic stereotypes. Indeed, as Kushner notes, one can harbor a social dislike for Jews, and nonetheless still feel, and even vociferously express, disdain for anti-Semitism. At first glance, such forms of anti-Semitism may appear relatively innocuous, especially when compared with the genocidal prejudices of Nazi Germany, or, taking a less extreme example, with what Kushner calls anti-Semitism of exclusion, and Stone defies, at, defines as extreme exclusionary anti-Semitism, 
that is, anti-Semitism based on the idea that Jews will always be alien and a threat to the British way of life. But such forms are in fact crucial to the history of 20th century British and American hate rhetoric, providing a window into the ways in which new definitions of race, religion, and national identity have been negotiated within the confines of established parameters of civil behavior. Today, I'll be discussing briefly the ways in which these seemingly genteel, even discrete forms of anti-Semitism are formulated, transmitted, and legitimized in the work of the British modernist writer, Wyndham Lewis. For those of you not familiar with him, he was one of what I would consider one of the most important theorists of um, anti-Semitism in the 1930s in British, not himself Jewish. Um, I'll be focusing in particular on his 1939 polemic, The Jews Are They Human? Um, here I'll just pause and say what I'm about to do is to do what English professors do, which is to turn to the literary text. Um, so turning to the 1939 polemic, The Jews Are They Human? in which against the backdrop of the Jewish refugee crisis of the 1930s, he advocates for greater aid for the refugees, emphasizing Britain's obligations and the importance of asylum. This is in a period when most of the press and British officials are now talking about relocation programs in the British colonies for the Jews. They don't want to talk about opening Britain's borders. So he's doing something that is quite radical in this period. I say specifically crisis, because by the time the Jews or the Union is published, over 70,000 Jews had already left Germany for Britain. Despite these numbers, British policy regarding aid for the refugees was at best inconsistent, at worst controversial and ineffectual to the great detriment of the refugees themselves. I focus on Lewis today for two reasons. First, because of crucial political correlations between the present moment and the period in which Lewis was writing. The Jews Are the Human is published in an era in which British economic, social, and cultural power is declining a decade characterized by what Jed Este calls imperial contraction. Debates about what to do with or about the Jews <coughs> exacerbate the anxieties surrounding <coughs> this decline. Second, I draw on Lewis because his particularly careful attention to and utilization of anti-Semitism offers us a potent example of what today we might call smart racism. That is, rhetorically complex racisms or anti-Semitisms that, in their subtlety of expression, rarely appear to be as virulent, hence as dangerous, as the prejudices expressed by figures such as Henry Ford, Oswald Mosley in Britain, or more recently, David Duke, Pat Robertson, and Nick Griffin, and to this list I will add all of the things that we saw this morning. Indeed, in their most nuanced forms, such racisms may be oddly useful or productive for political argumentation. For writers such as Lewis, even as late as 1939, when the politics of anti-Semitism is approaching its world historical apotheosis, anti-Semitism has a peculiar, even if perverse, use value, if handled with a certain discretion. That is to say, for Lewis, if handled in the English rather than Germanic manner. Ultimately, I will make what may seem to be a counterintuitive claim. That in Lewis's work, anti-Semitism functions not primarily as an attitude toward Jews, but rather as a discourse that is utilized to create and hence legitimize new national histories and a distinct political agenda. 
one in which British actions can remain, at least in Lewis's eyes, and hopefully in the eyes of Lewis's readers, civil and always reasonable. The Jews are the human is an effect. <laughs>
to deliberately not notice the Jews' funny little ways is an ethical and political act, the positive outcome of which will be the revelation that Jews are, in fact, like anybody else. By extension, being noticed is what creates the Jew, an argument that strangely anticipates Jean Passat's often cited claim that the Jew is an invention of the anti-Semite. As Lewis notes, what was the use of being a peculiar people if no one noticed it or gave a damn? Elaborating on this observation, he then describes the assimilation of Jews in China. The Chinese absorbed the Jews, and they did it by taking absolutely no notice of them. It is with Lewis's turn toward China that Jewish mannerisms, that which one can actively refuse to see, and which materialize most fully only when they are acknowledged by the non-Jew, becomes not merely the sign of the religious or cultural difference of Jews, but rather a set of physical phenomena comprising the biology or racial makeup of Jews. In China, Lewis says, the Jew was lost more and more of his well-known characteristics. First, his earlocks went, then his captain, then his nose began to stop growing so melancholy and so long and took on a Chinese elegance and discretion. The crucial subtext of this narrative of the Jewish nose a narrative that Lewis casts simultaneously as a story of Jewish assimilation and of China's tolerance toward Jews is the Jews' disappearance. Such disappearance is exemplified in effect by a nose job, an ostensible physical modification produced by the cultural act of ignoring Jewish behavior. Following the description, his description of the nose, Lewis advises his readers to emulate the model of the Chinese and properly ignore the Jew. He then characterizes the potentially distressing consequence of a failure to act in terms of a physical change, the appearance of 0.6% more domineering noses among the British population. In short, Lewis alters his characterization of the Jew's nose once he, begin once he begins using the figure of the proboscis to discuss the issue of Jewish assimilation in England rather than in China. While the nose serves for Lewis as a sign of Jewish absence in China, in England, he transforms it into a sign of Jewish presence preserved, so to speak, upon the body of the British public. Lewis's image of England's growing proboscis serves a dual purpose. It allows Lewis to condemn his English readers for their failure to properly ignore the Jew, hence the Jew's increasing visibility manifested by the British public's own inflated noses, and it allows him to continue to direct the English to be more like the Chinese. In a span of just a few pages, the nose thus comes to signify not only Jewish presence and absence, but more importantly, a host nation's ability to ignore Jewish behavior, an obligation never fully realized by the English, while fully achieved by the Chinese, whose Jews now sport noses of Chinese elegance and discretion. Significantly, even as Lewis calls on his readers to be like the Chinese, that is, to ignore the Jews' actions or customs. So he directs his reader's attention precisely to those same actions and customs that he has just pointed out. In other words, he gets his readers to notice Jewish behavior just as he cajoles them to look the other way. On the level of the rhetoric of his narrative, he produces the very Jew he wishes to ignore. This double logic, in which the Jew appears by disappearing, or assimilates by alienating the native population itself, 
has a number of strange or disturbing implications for Lewis and for the study of anti-Semitism more generally. Let me suggest just one of them. This is an extreme example um, from his works, Left Wings Over Europe and Hit The Hitler Cult. Although at the end of the 1930s, Lewis advocates explicitly for greater aid for the Jewish refugees. His elaborate narratives make it nearly impossible for his readers to conceive of Jews as actual targets of oppression. Indeed, ultimately, it becomes possible for him to identify Jews as the tormentors of the Germans and to suggest that British statesmen persecute Germans because such statesmen are themselves, in effect, Jewish. This is where we begin to get a rhetoric of disease and the rhetoric of secret Jews and conclusion. In other words, in Lewis's work, British Gentiles are victims of their own Jewish identities and in their subjugation by Jewishness, strangely akin to the Germans who were tormented by Old Testament patterns of judicial behavior. Through such arguments, Lewis effectively turns Jews themselves into anti-Semites, extending a common contention that Jews are the cause of anti-Semitism, importing it into various nations like a disease. Indeed, we might even go, to, go as far to say that in Lewis's work, Jews themselves come to be the authentic anti-Semites. Thus, the logic of the Aliens Acts with which I began this discussion remains in place. All the old anti-Semitic stereotypes are redeployed, invasion, contagion, degeneration, but through rhetorically elaborate means, already part of a legitimate and reasonable civil discourse that effectively displaces all responsibility for its bigotry on to its very sub-object. Let me conclude by offering two contemporary examples of this smart racism or anti-Semitism that Lewis exemplifies, both of which occur in a context in which expressing anti-Semitism per se is taboo. Uh, just to remind you, by smart anti-Semitism, I mean in these cases anti-Semitism that is expressed by those who are aware of historical prejudices against Jews and conscious of the inadvisability of being anti-Semitic. Um, I assume that both of these examples will be familiar to you. The first is the now infamous case of Edward Merwin and James Ulmer, who, defending South Carolina Senator Jim DeMint's opposition to earmarks, compared DeMint to wealthy Jews who acquired their money not by watching who acquired the money not by watching dollars, but instead by taking care of the pennies and dollars taking care of themselves. DeMint, they explained, is watching our nation's pennies and trying to preserve our country's wealth and our economy's viability to give all an opportunity to succeed. When questioned about their comments, Merwin responded that the statements were truly in admiration for a method of bettering one's life. In other words, not at all anti-Semitic, or rather a familiar kind of anti-Semitism, pervaded by those who would argue vociferously that they are not only not anti-Semitic, but the very antithesis of an anti-Semite. Indeed, on a certain level, Jews in Merwin's eyes are kind of uber-patriot, preserving our country's wealth. The second case is perhaps more complex, that of evangelical Christianity, especially the Christian identity movement, which tends to perpetuate a kind of contemporary political supersession, supersession theory in which Jews, now allied with Christians, are positioned to sacrifice themselves for Christianity. Both, of course, are now a common part of our political American uh, rhetoric. That the kind of rhetoric we find in Lewis and today, um, Lewis and today is at odds with sentiments held by Jews themselves is certain. More difficult is developing methods by which to analyze the rhetoric 
a process that entails not only recalibrating the nature and criteria, our nature, the nature and criteria for explicating and categorizing hatred and anti-Semitism, but also broadening the scope of our research and inquiries to redefine what we mean when we discuss both the history of anti-Semitic offenses and hate offenders themselves. And let me just um, end with this note. What does it mean uh, to put into practice this sort of call that I'm making for both education and research? Well, one of the things I suggest is that we need to um, teach people how to think of anti-Semitism in relation to forms of rhetorical argumentation, which means introducing vocabulary for the study of hate rhetoric. And when I talk about argumentation, I certainly don't mean to minimize or legitimize anti-Semitism. Let me just give you some examples. Things as simple as this. Essentialism versus anti-essentialism. Here's a rhetorical term, paralepsis, which is um, sideways speaking, saying one thing from one side of your mouth and another thing from the other. Metonymy, as opposed to metaphor, um, this would help us to understand how a process of association is developed and built up, what Professor Nilsson called transmogrified, right? So how a Jew becomes one thing is then turned into another thing is then turned into another thing. Interactionist model of prejudice, this is one of Tony Kushner's terms, whereby a group's political engagements are described as the cause of the rise of the hatred against them. Um, such vocabulary is important also for research commissions that are tracking cases of and or escalations of anti-Semitism, I've got less than um, anti-Semitism, because such groups are often focused on visible anti-Semitism, vandalism, hate crime, these forms, the kind of forms that I'm talking about, um, are often missed, not counted, they cannot be counted. We may, may um, get a strange sense of an increase in anti-Semitism without ever being able to identify the anti-Semites. I'm actually going to take the liberty of using the PowerPoint a little, skip it over. Um, and what I'm going to be speaking of in some ways carries on the, uh, the conversation that began in terms of uh, looking at uh, rhetorical devices. Um, because I'm actually going to continue by looking at a segment of the Catholic Church. Um, as you can see up above, pictures of Mel Gibson, I try to find a particularly flattering picture of him, um, and his father. Um, and the idea is basically that I want to focus on a wing of the Catholic Church that has been in opposition to the formal church, is in schism in many ways to it. Um, its numbers are not necessarily large, but in terms of legitimacy, of anti-Semitism um, and theological anti-Semitism in particular, their influence is perhaps growing and there are certain danger signals that I'd like to point out, as well as going back and taking a look back in time as to where this theology came from and how it developed and why, in essence, we're trying to deal with it today. So it, it, it's also part and parcel of the title of the conference, remember, is the, the issue of modernity, and in many ways this is bound up with an attack or rejection of modernity by certain segments and certain um, individuals. So that, that's really, I'm not going to be spending much time on Bill Gibson. I mean, you remember the whole firestorm over the, uh, the, the Passion of the Christ and so on, which sort of uh, interjected it, it, it this whole issue into the public eye. Um, but the next place it really came up is with Bishop Richard Williamson. Williamson is a bishop of a group called the Society of St. Pius X, which is, I'll call SSPX from now on, which is a group that is in opposition to Vatican II. And by the way, that's the loose definition that I'm going to 
you know, work on in terms of tra these traditionalist groups. There are different groups and different individuals. I, obviously, I'm not getting into the details of all that. Um, but basically, they're loosely grouped as being in opposition to Vatican II. And for our cases especially, in terms of both the, the church's movements on religious liberty and the document Nostra Aetate, which was the sort of signifier that's created the revolutionary change in church theology vis-a-vis -vis Jews and Judaism over the past 40 so years. So Williamson came into the public eye when um, he issued a, uh, a um, interview on Swedish TV in January 2009 in which he questioned the Holocaust. And he said, quote, I believe that the historical evidence is strongly against, is hugely against, six million Jews being deliberately gassed in gas chambers as the deliberate policy of Adolf Hitler. And he continued, I think that 200,000, 300,000 Jews perished in Nazi concentration camps, but none of them in gas chambers. Well, you can imagine the immediate reaction. Um, and so it became a major issue. Now, the thing that was very touchy about this was it was the same time, very same day, that that was uh, aired on TV. It was the day that Pope Benedict um, itch lifted the excommunications of Williamson's group, the Society of St. Pius the, uh, the Tenth. Why they were excommunicated is a whole thing. The society was founded by a French archbishop named Marcelli, who was actually at Vatican II, rejected the teachings of Vatican II at that point, founded this group um, you know, uh, in 1970. They had been in the United States as well with uh, chapels in California, Texas, New York, a seminary in Minnesota, as well as Switzerland in, in uh, South America and so on. Uh, and they've been growing numerically. They're, they're well entrenched, they're well financed, and they're a growing group. Um, and the same, and then uh, when their leader, Lefebvre, uh, decided to uh, ordain four bishops independently of the church, then they were put in schism. And I'm, I'm shortening this whole history dramatically. Um, and the day that that was lifted was the day that Williamson's uh, interview was aired, which obviously led to a major, major uh, issue. And the current leader of the group, um, Archbishop Fillet, said it is clear, I'm quoting, that a Catholic bishop cannot speak with ecclesiastical authority except on questions that regard faith and morals. Our fraternity does not claim any authority on other matters. Its mission is the propagation and restoration of authentic Catholic doctrine expressed in the dogmas of the faith. The affirmations of Bishop Williamson do not reflect in any sense the position of our fraternity. For this reason, I prohibited him, pending any new orders, from taking any public positions on political or historical questions. This sounds very reasonable. It sounds that Williamson makes it sound as if Williamson was off on a limb by himself, and basically the rest of the group was not any place close to him. He had exceeded all authority, etc., and was operating as sort of a lone wolf and was being reined in. The reality is much to the contrary. Matter of fact, it's totally opposite. And that's what I want to show you. Um, I'll spend a little bit. Williamson, first of all, did not come to this as a new, uh, newly in 2009. In a letter that was posted on the SSPX's seminary's website, which is still available, dated February 1st, 1999, 1991, Williamson, talking about the original Gulf War, talked about, um, he, well, he had a really weird sense of things, that the war was for the benefit of Russia. Because at that point, he saw that what would happen was that Russia would eventually go through the unguarded areas of uh, Eastern Europe, vacated by troops going to the Middle East, and be able to fulfill their lifelong communist dreams of conquering Europe. But behind that was even a more sinister cause, and I'm quoting now. However, behind the Gulf War, even behind Russia, one may not thoroughly fear the looming figure of the Antichrist. The war was the creation of the many friends of Israel and the USA, 
moving for the United States to break the Arab strongman. And by the way, this is very similar language to Pat Buchanan, who also is identified, even on his wiki site, if you look at it, he's identified as a traditionalist Catholic as well. Um, and he continues, putting it in a very clear theological perspective. Quote, until the Jews recover their true messianic vocation by accepting the church, they may be expected to continue fanatically agitating in accordance with their false messianic vocation of Jewish world domination. So we may fear they're continuing, they're continuing to play their major part in the agitation of the East and the corruption of the West. So this was almost two decades before the Swedish interview. Williamson's views were clearly well known. And yet, nothing had been done. And nothing had been done because, in essence, they were part and parcel of the society's views as well. Even as far back, if we go back to Lafayette, we see that his record was mixed at best in regard to Jews. He was quoted, according to the National Catholic Register, he's quoted as having spoken approvingly of both the World War II era Vichy regime in France and the National Front, the Foreign National Front, and who identified the contemporary enemies of the faith as Jews, Communists, and Freemasons. He criticized all heretics and all the, uh, all the, all the efforts of the church, uh, sorry, in an August 31st, 1985 letter to Pope John Paul II, he criticized, I'm quoting, all the reforms carried over 20 years through the church to these heretics, schismatics, false religions, and declared enemies of the church, such as the Jews, the communists, and the Freemasons. Not only that, but Nazi war criminal Paul Tuvier, who was convicted in absentia of uh, collaborating, the, the murder, the execution of seven Jews in 1944 as a Nazi collaborator, was arrested in 1989 in a prior of the fraternity after having been um, sheltered there for close to 20 years. Um, when he died, and Tuvier died in 1996, a parish church operated by the fraternity offered a requiem mass in his honor. So, if you go, and then I, what I continued to do was to go to, uh, well, we'll skip that, that's Williamson again, that's Lafayette. Uh, all right, before we get to Fahey, um, if you went to, shortly after the interview was aired, I went back to the website of the SSPX and I pulled a couple of um, articles off the website. They have subsequently been removed from the SSPX's website. But they said, for example, one of them described that uh, Vatican teaching that the Jews should not be spoken of as rejected or accursed, as it's followed from Holy Scripture, this was the revised post-Vatican II teaching, is described as outrageous. And then, another essay claims, and I'm quoting, that Judaism is inimical to all nations in general, and in a special manner to Christian nations. The unrepentant Jewish people are disposed by God to be a theological enemy. The status of this opposition must be universal, inevitable, and terrible. There are claims, again quoting, that the Talmud, which governs Jews, orders enmity with Christians, that Jewish people persecute Christendom, conspire against the Christian state, commit usury, and even are known to kill Christians. Um, and that was originally published in the 1997 issue, print issue of their magazine, Angelus, and then posted online again. And there's more to it. One of their uh, 1959 letter from one of the famous close friends, uh, another bishop of the groups, quote, money, the media, and international politics are for a large part in the hands of Jews. You begin to see that this theology is permeated and shot through totally with anti-Semitism. Um, I'm going to skip over a number of others. But the question is, where did this come from? And in many ways, the figure that keeps popping up, if you go and looking at this, the theological godfather, so to speak, of this movement is this Irish priest named Dennis Fahey, Father Dennis Fahey. Fahey, those are his dates, was trained in France, uh, as a matter of fact, and in, uh, in Rome. And, as a and there, by the way, 
I guess we'd have to say that part of the time that he was trained in France in the 1920s was the height of the Catholic anti-modernist, anti-Semitic reaction to um, the Republican, growing Republican power and the separation between church and state uh, powers in France. So there was a huge amount, and just to give you an idea, one writer writing at that time described the French Revolution, and all this was, was really just a reaction to the French Revolution. Um, and the anti-clericalism of the French Revolution, and described it as the greatest event in world history in the last 1800 years. So they were talking about people who saw the French Revolution as really the fulcrum of not just local history or national history, but of world history and gave it a theological context as well. Meaning that it was a revolt not just against the establishment of the Vatican, but it was against God's ordained order. That the world had parted from its moorings which should have been anchored in the Catholic Church. So this was the uh, theology that Fahey absorbed, and he devoted his life to spreading as well. He, uh, David Kurtzer, who's written some very uh, good on this, described that situation that uh, the Jews' visible national politics and the civil service and the economy served as a lightning rod, rod, all that was wrong with modern French society. So Fahey obtained two uh, doctorates in Rome that studied in France and so on, uh, the uh, Seminar Francais there, and returned to Ireland where he lived the rest of his life as a public intellectual, so well known and respected that upon his death in 1954, Irish Prime Minister Eamon de Valera attended his evening funeral mass. So we're not talking about someone who was obscure at that point. Um, he published a number of books, I'm not going to go through all of them, but uh, just to give you an idea, the world to him was a very simple place, he had a very Manichaean view of the world. He believed that God was the only accessible through the Catholic Church, which in turn was, his words, supernatural and supernatural. God was locked in a cosmic struggle with Satan, which was very real in Verfei, and Satan's agents were actually threefold. Bolshevism, as the most recent development of the age-long struggle against the Jewish nation, waged by the Jewish nation against the supernatural Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, and as mystical by the Catholic Church. He also loved Freemasonry in there as well. In that text, they followed the depiction with a comparison of Catholicism and Judaism, which obviously was totally detrimental to Judaism, which according to his uh, 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 theology, attempted, Jews attempted a rejection of Jesus as Christ to, quote, recast the world in the mold of Jewish national life. In other words, Jews were out because of their rejection of the figure of Jesus to really take over and dominate the world in a very here and now sense versus the eternal um, sense that was existed in Catholicism. Communism was a tool just used by the Jews. The real forces behind Bolshevism and Jewish and Russia are Jewish forces, and Bolshevism is really an instrument in the hands of Jews for the establishment of their future messianic kingdom. Um, and then in another book, he spells out the differences between Jews and Catholics regarding what he terms citizenship. As members of their own messianic nation, Jews must strive for the domination of their nation over others, as thus they alone they hold justice and peace to be achieved on earth. The Jew would fail in his duty to the Messiah to come if he did not subordinate the interests of other nations to his own. In other words, Jews are required to dominate the world. But the Catholic Church, being supernatural, national and supernatural, does not aim at the obliteration of natural characteristics and qualities by the imposition of a national form, but at their harmonious development by the elimination of the defects due to original sin. And he also believed that the world had reached the peak in the 12th century when the church was its central ruler and everything else was downhill till the cataclysmic catastrophe of the French Revolution. Um, now, to contrast that with just something that Williamson wrote in a letter and commenting on uh, 
Pope Benedict's 2005 address to the Curia, Williamson wrote, quote, again, what is wrong with freeing states from any obligation to Christ the King is that implicitly you are denying that Jesus Christ is God. Religious liberty means, in effect, the declaration of independence from God, which is directly opposed to the first commandment. However, when Catholics are in a sufficient majority, the state may physically prevent the public practice of false religion while tolerating their religion, their practice in private. In other words, again, Williamson, following the same vein, saw that the world states had a function according to a Catholic, um, a Catholic political sense. Um, I'm going to skip through a number of other things. I'm going to say that even the Holocaust did not shape Fahey's belief. He saw the German reaction. He drew a distinction between anti-Semitism um, and anti-Judaism. And uh, all the propaganda about the display of anti-Semitism of, of the Holocaust in Germany should not make Catholics forget the existence of age-long Jewish naturalism and anti-supernaturalism. In other words, it didn't matter. And for his sources, for example, he drew upon people like Nesta Webster, uh, Arnold Weiss, a famous British anti-Semite of that period, um, and other conspiracy theorists, and so on. Okay, um, so I'm going to. There also some interesting things to say about Alfred Rosenberg, the Nazi theorist. Um, now, all that may have been fine, and he may have just existed in this vacuum, this little vacuum, except for one thing. Fahey also became the favorite of theologian of Father Charles Coughlin. And Coughlin was the famous American radio priest in the 1930s who reached audiences of millions across the country. And I say favorite, the only one uh, in that book, actually got a copy of it finally, an original copy. This book, The Rulers of Russia, that Fahey published, Coughlin republished in, in America, and it actually was published by Coughlin, listen to Father Coughlin's broadcast, it's published by Coughlin's Social Justice Publishing Company. And they exchanged communications as well, even after Coughlin was silenced by official church um, leaders in the United States, they wrote to each other. Coughlin wrote a letter um, to Fahey in 1941, in which he said, well, anti-Semitism is to be abhorred insofar as related to hatred for Jews as individuals and racials. Nevertheless, anti-Judaism, which means opposition to the Judaic concept of life, is not so to be condemned. And there's other correspondence between them. Um, it's reached a point, by the way, that I found in the FDR archives in Hyde Park a memo that FDR sent to his representative at the Vatican, Myron Taylor, in which he said that, you, I forgot to mention, when you get the chance, you might express the thought to the Vatican that there's a great deal of anti-Jewish feeling in the Diocese of Brooklyn, Baltimore, and Detroit, and this feeling is said to be encouraged by the church. So in the 1940s, in the middle of World War II, the sense of the sense of anti-Semitism in the Catholic community, at that time it was the established Catholic community, represented by the Catholic presses, spurred by Coughlin, phase theology and so on, had actually reached um, into the White House itself. Now, the impact of that can be felt in different ways today. That's Coughlin. One is that if you go around, uh, <coughs> on the internet or in different places, you will find that there are links between these people and some of the extremist neo-Nazi movement today. So, for example, Willis Cardo, who was founded the Institute of Historical View, the Center for Holocaust Denial in the United States, the Liberty Lobby, and, and a number of other places, um, that are just you know, extreme far-right, stated that as a youth that he remembered listening to Coughlin's broadcast and described as a spellbinding orator. He never heard of any right-wing extremism except for Coughlin, though it was his, part of his thought as a youth, when he was impressionable, was shaped by Coughlin, which was filtering uh, Fahey's theology through that. Uh, Francis Parker Yaki, a major American theorist, neo-Nazi, or Nazi theorist at that point as well, actually contributed an article to Social Justice, Coughlin's Journal in 1938, 
And uh, Faye even had contact with Gerald L. K. Smith, who was one of the major anti-Semitic rabble-raisers of the mid-20th century, and they even exchanged letters in the 1940s and the early 1950s. Um, and Faye wrote a letter to an Irish follower that the program of Gerald L. K. Smith has taken from his paper, The Cross and the Flag, declares unflinchingly and equivalently for the rights of Christ the King, or is it distracted and spears for Christ King or against them? Others who have stepped in more recently on the side of this stuff are, for example, following the Williamson Affair, Mark Weber, the director of the Institute of Historical Review, um, has an article on the website of the IHR titled uh, 2009, Williamson and Holocaust Denial, in which it obviously comes out in favor of it. Robert Forasson, who's a French <laughs> Holocaust denier, currently in the middle of a squabble with Weber over the future direction of Holocaust denial, has a blog defending Williamson, and he says, he ends up by saying, the height of his enemy's misfortune, and for the traditionalist Catholic he is, if he ever did fall to his knees before the new Inquisition, meaning Williamson, he would immediately remind everyone of Galileo, the man who the science of history ended up acknowledging to be right despite his abjuration. Even if he wound up losing, Richard Williamson would thus have won. So we see that there's a link growing, or the adoption of some of this theological anti-Semitism coming through to the far-right neo-Nazi movement and Holocaust denial movement in a way that we haven't seen for about 30, 40 years, going back to the Gerald L. K. Smith, Coughlin period of the 30s, 40s, and uh, 50s. Um, now, however, it can, gets even worse in a sense, or I think it gets worse. Despite the denunciation of Williams' Holocaust denial, oh, by the way, the Stormfront, where I took this from, um, that was just to show the tablet, uh, the, the influence of the tablet, and so on. Um, Stormfront is the, uh, was the first neo-Nazi website online, it's still on, online today. Um, all right, let's skip the rules. Um, this stuff is still going on. Despite everything Filet said, despite all these, you know, so forth ritualistic denials of anti-Semitism, two days, three days ago, Friday, I went back to the website and I accessed from the Asia's SSPX Society's website an article by a bishop entitled My Return to the Traditional Latin, uh, Latin Mass, Autobiography of a Traditional Catholic Bishop. And in it, he lists some of the books that inspired him on a spiritual journey. And of course, Fahey's books are listed there. And he writes, as well about their impact. Reading these books, quoting, gave me a better idea of the crisis of the future of the church today. It gave clear to me who the real enemies of the Catholic Church, Father 